Thanks for joining us. Remember to like, subscribe, and share the Random Assignment podcast wherever you find it. Coming up later in the show, we'll be asking the question, do Fourth Amendment privacy rights extend to what teachers see in Zoom classes with kids in their homes? Also, the Buffalo school board members say that they're not against charter schools. The problem is only that too many families are picking them. And... By what specious, convoluted, establishment-protecting logic did the Tennessee Court of Appeals find education savings accounts unconstitutional? We will tell you later in the show what that court said. So let's just start with the fact Dude. that I think we had a national trauma from a debate last night that we're all kind of... I, I presume we probably all know uh, defenders of both men who were shouting... Joy, screams of joy, of uh, triumphant victory, and then there were also others of us who were kind of, you know, headache-driven by the entire incident. Corey, what did you think? Oh my God, I was laughing so much. Um, I didn't think it was going to be that bad. I, I knew there was going to be some, you know, bickering back and forth, but oh my God. And then, you know, like, it's it was just, I was just like, I, I can't even, like, see what's going, I, I can't even, like, keep track of like what they're even talking about because it's just like so much screaming over each other. You had Joe Biden, you know, telling Trump just shut up already. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was, it was, it was just, I don't know, man. Like you wouldn't like 2020, man, this is like the presidential debates and this is what we get. You know, I right. think that Joe Jorgensen won a lot of votes last night. She was the only winner of the debate the libertarian candidate. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Well, my, my view is that uh, on style points, I thought that Trump interrupted too much. A little bit of interrupting is, is probably good, but yeah. then you reach a kind of a threshold beyond which it seemed, felt like it was almost every Biden answer and it was too much. And then second thing I'd say about Trump's style is that he was, um, he, you know, he wasn't smiling. He wasn't funny. You think back to 2016 when Trump, you know, when they asked the question, uh, Megyn Kelly asked the question, you've called women fat pigs. And he goes, only Rosie O'Donnell. And the entire crowd breaks up and laughs because it's it's funny. There was not a funny t uh, type Trump last night. He was he seemed like kind of mad the whole time, kind of angry. So I thought stylistically, uh, I thought Trump. Well, he didn't. He didn't do what he should have. He should have been more. I, I was thinking he would be more presidential at the beginning, and then later in the debate, kind of morph into more of the attack dog, uh, whatever. So that that's my view. But then on substance, I kind of thought it was a draw. You know, Biden would not say he wouldn't stack the court when directly oh, yeah. asked. I thought that was a why. That's open when he told thing. Trump to shut up. <laughs> right. Right. So and then, you know, and then people are making a lot about how like Trump didn't, you know, didn't say he would decry white supremacy, even though he said, sure, when, you know, that was his first answer. Twice, but yeah. then but then Biden wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, reject Antifa either. And it seems like the mainstream media finds that like, oh, who cares about that? There's only mm -hmm. like 100 days of Portland fires in Seattle and Seattle and Minneapolis and all kinds of other riots that Antifa has helped drive. That's actually literal violence happening in the streets. And well, that kind of refused to distance himself, meaning if it's on the side of Biden and Antifa, well, that's fine. Well, that's OK. Who cares about that? Let's focus on this other thing with Trump. Anyway, so I thought on, on a substance level, it was probably a draw. And I think on a style level, I thought that Trump made mistakes. Yeah, I mean, Chris Christie even said right after the debate um, that he felt like Trump was too hot. Um, yes. In other words, yeah, too much of an attack dog uh, from start to finish. But yes. it was just hard to, you know, it was just hard to watch. It was kind of funny at first, but and uh, then it just kept happening. You know, it just like it just too much. It too was much. just like, what is this? But yeah, so. Uh, they didn't talk about education at all. Um, I was, you know, it's kind of good that uh, school choice wasn't mentioned in this debate since it was such a disaster. Um, <laughs> probably best to just leave school choice out of the conversation altogether if that's going to be the kind of conversation they're going to have. As we've already kind of started to, to go into Trump and Biden on education, there was a news group called Newsy. It's an online news group who decided to make a video about what subject? Well, our subject, which is uh, the education policy issue, and, and and they decided to make a video particularly about the Trump versus Biden positions on education. Education has ricocheted to the forefront of the campaign as President Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden debate how to safely reopen schools. 
While each support getting students back in buildings, their plans on how to go about it have differed. We're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools. I'd be working with the leaders of Congress now, today, to pass emergency packages for schools so they have the resources they need in order to be able to open safely. For K-12 students, President Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos have long championed expanding options outside of traditional public districts. President Trump, they've only talked about one thing, and that's school choice. That includes charter schools, which are publicly funded and privately run. Charter schools have been incredible, but they're under attack. Biden supports stricter accountability for charter schools and closing locations operated by for-profit companies, which is about 12 percent. And there are differences when it comes to higher education, too. Biden's wife, Jill, is a community college professor who's already hosted education events on the campaign trail. She's been influential and was influential when he was vice president uh, over his uh, ideas on, on higher education. Those ideas include offering free tuition at public higher education institutions for families making less than $125,000 per year. The president's re-election campaign called Biden's plan, quote, anything but free, saying he should explain to Americans how much it will cost. Amy Morona, Newsy. Okay, so what do you say to that, Corey? What do you think when you watch oh, he, that? You know, just Joe Biden just wants more accountability for charter schools. Top-down regulations aren't the same thing as accountability. True accountability only comes in the form of being able to vote with your feet. So I, I hate when people try to say that, oh, he just wants more accountability for charter schools. Come on. You, right. what, that, what that really means is it's a barrier to entry that blocks families from being able to access charter schools. And he explicitly calls to allow for more um, of the school districts to be able to regulate which charter schools even get to get to open. And then I don't think she mentioned um, his views on the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program and wanting to take away uh, scholarships from low-income students in the district. That's true. Uh, but on the subject of the charters, you're right. You're right to focus on this accountability word. It's almost like this trick word, right? So you always have to be for it and you always have to be for more of it. And if we have this much of it, we should have even more and then more and more so that like one report becomes 10 reports, becomes 100 reports. Well, do we can't, well, what if we have a thousand reports? That's just more accountability, which is always good, right? So, I mean, and it is the, the sheer volume of paperwork these charters have to fill out. Is I, I want to do, I still should do this. I was once going to do a video on nothing but how many forms charter schools fill out on an annual basis. It's hundreds. Um, but the, my, main, my other reaction to it is I thought to myself, where did they get uh, this Biden charter position from? That, you know, that they, like, because, you know, we have this, we have this uh, soundbite where Joe Biden says the whole notion of Betsy DeVos notion of charter schools will be gone and uses the word gone. But he's never clarified that. You have Trump going around the country saying Biden's against charter schools, which he's never explicitly said either. But you never have Biden then correcting that mm -hmm. point. And then so you, you go to the Biden website, which is the JoeBiden.com. And there it is. And there's that's the education section, the K through 12, they have a specific K through 12 education section. You know what you won't find in that section? Charters. The word charter does yep. not appear. The word choice does not appear. Huh. That's right. There you go. Uh, and so, yeah. And so you're the newsy reporter doing, writing the position that Joe Biden has on charter schools. And he doesn't have one. I don't know how you even claim uh, you know, I don't know how you even fill out that sec. You'd have that just has to be a blank, a blank screen or a line or a question mark anyway. So that was, I mean, yeah, the, the, the thing I look at is the Biden Sanders unity task force, you know, where they called to get rid of the DC voucher program and to strap all a whole bunch of additional regulations, uh, to charter I'd schools. I'd forgotten about that, but you're, but, but, you know, last night in the debate, Joe Biden distanced himself from, from the yeah. the, mm -hmm. the positions, you know, the those, Green those New Deal. Positions. Yeah, yeah basically all the Bernie Sanders. He said, "Oh, that's all. That's Bernie Sanders." What? Yeah, like he he was saying, it, it was a little bit confusing, right? Because it wasn't. Are those Bernie Sanders Joe Biden coalition points Joe Biden official positions, or is it just sort of this kind of working group that came up with ideas that's a vague, vaguely mm -hmm. applied to? To Joe, I don't know. Yeah, well, um, 
What's interesting is you, you also just have, you know, you have all the money quotes from him opposing charters like the, uh, you know, my, if I'm a, if I'm president, Betsy DeVos's whole notion of charter school from charter schools to this are gone, which seems pretty anti-charter school. And then also his his interview with the president of the largest teachers union, the NEA, Lily Eskelson Garcia, he said something along the lines of if I'm president or something, um, no, no funding will no federal funding will will go to any private charter schools is what he said. He didn't say for profit. He didn't say, but he, yeah, he said and no. He said something else. Also, school. she she went. She said something about how they they it says how they oppose the union opposes charter schools, and she said so. You know our position on charters, and he said it's my position. Same as same as mine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> same as mine yeah, or whatever so the exact words are. Yeah, you have an NEA member in the White House if yeah. I'm president. So yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the information we have on on his official stance or unofficial kind of thoughts on charters. He had, he certainly hasn't come out and said like, oh, I'm for expanding charter schools or 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 private school choice initiatives for families. I haven't heard anything like that from from Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. All right. So go on. So you uh, found a story about uh, from the Wall Street Journal on pandemic pops. Yep. Yep, and we had shared a story on this a week or two ago with the uh, teachers in New Jersey who had left the public school system after being in it for 20 years to uh, teach teach children in a pandemic pod, six children, which benefits the, the, the teacher but from having a much smaller class size. I think she was earning about the same amount as what she would have gotten in the public school system. And obviously, uh, she got a lot more autonomy from from not having to deal with all the rules and regulations in the public school system. Um, but Wall Street Journal just wrote on this pretty recently, teachers find higher pay and grow, growing options in COVID pods. Um, so this kind of just highlights that idea that um, teachers can, can find uh, alternatives to the public school system in pandemic pods as well. So this isn't only a, you know, school choice can't, isn't only a benefit for families and their children, uh, but it can also lead to labor market competition and choice when it comes to employment for the teachers. And so a lot of teachers are seeing this as a great option as well. And I mean, this also reminds me of how we talked about that statement from Denver Public Schools that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, or actually last month, where Denver Public Schools issued a statement urging families not to hire public school teachers for their pandemic pods, <laughs> um, which is kind of an, uh, an acknowledgement that they understand that families are going to, or teachers are going to see that this is a good idea that they could have smaller class sizes about the same pay and uh, a lot more autonomy. Yeah. No, they give an example. In fact, I don't know if you can click on that and it'll drop down the story of, uh, you know, if they don't make you buy anything, uh, but yeah, they talk about a Chrissy Rand, who's a 39 years old, put out her resume because why? Well, uh, her Salem, Massachusetts public school completely shut down. She called last spring's remote teaching a nightmare. She was disheartened to learn about the fall guidelines for no library, no gym, gym time. She says, quote, you're basically a prisoner in your classroom. So she put out her resume and eight groups of families contacted her within three days. She now makes more money teaching six first graders from six families in Massachusetts. They're following their public school's curriculum even. And she's added, listen to this, cooking, yoga, earth sciences, lots of hand-on experiments that was not the case before when she had a much larger classroom. She's just making more money. She's teaching fewer kids. She loves that there's no administrative red tape, she says, no sitting through long meetings. Quote, it's a teacher's dream. The days fly by. So this is that dreaded pandemic pod that we've been hearing about that's so awful. And, you know, oh, it's going to be so terrible for teachers because they won't have, you know, some big union protecting their pension or something. And in this particular teacher's uh, point of view, it's a dream. Yeah, but then they got some quotes from the NEA and the, the teachers union saying that uh, they think that this will uh, do damage to the public education system. And it's like, well, wow. they're right about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, giving people an of... option, giving people an option will do damage to the public education system. Well, yeah. what does that say about the public education system? That's exactly I mean, that's a damage to the dues coming into the AFT. <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. The teachers aren't going to want to stay employed in our system. And, Don't you know, what does that say about what the doctor. unions have done for the teachers? Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, it's just strange. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just a, this isn't a system 
you know, this story comes out in a, in a system where we don't already have the money following the child. Just imagine if 15,000, 10, $15,000 followed the child. Just imagine how much teachers could make in that system where they're not having to rely on, you know, families paying twice, essentially paying through the property tax system for their public school, and then also out of pocket for this pandemic pod. If you could have more money following the child, that would mean ultimately more money making its way directly to the teacher as well. So not to mention a real education savings account where parents could put some money toward a college fund and then the rest of the money could pay for this and you'll end up to the added together spending less money per student than was spent in the traditional district, you know, with a free college fund. So anyway, yeah, we, 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 okay. So uh, whatever, we get the idea. So there was a positive story in the journal about pandemic pods. Let's go to Buffalo, New York, home of the Buffalo wings, Corey. I don't know if you're Whew. an aficionado of a, I actually hate Buffalo wings. I find them to be like really fatty and like a lot of, uh, of chicken skin or something. So I'm not into yeah. that. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so this is the story, but the Buffalo school board members covered by the local ABC affiliate saying, Hey, we're not anti-charter. No, that's ridiculous. Okay. We're not okay. anti-charter. The problem is just too many families want charters. Ah, well, so we're okay with charter schools, but uh, they're just doing too good of a job. They're beating us. Uh, let's let's see, let's hear it. The Buffalo School Board unanimously approved this resolution that calls on the State Board of Regents not to approve four new charter school applications. We're not anti-charter school. I just want to stress that. Charter schools provide valuable options, viable options to many of our families. Buffalo School Board member Lou Petrucci says the problem is the district is now well over a cap of only 5% of charter schools. Board member Larry Scott says the district is moving closer to 25%. It's not sustainable both for district schools and our existing charter schools. In the Buffalo Public School District, there are currently 18 charter schools. About 9,000 city school students attend those charter schools. There are four new proposed charter schools that are seeking state approval. We got the money quote, right? Um, you know, oh. People have the idea. And I wanted to say, like, if I'm trolling by, like, kind of, uh, you know, I know they literally didn't say the problem is too many families want charters. That's kind of, my, I consider that a pretty fair summary of what their actual point was. Oh, my God, we're way, this isn't sustainable. We have a, we originally were just going to have 5% charters. Now we're getting close to 25% enrol enrollment in charters. Not sustainable? My answer to that is, Yes, it is sustainable. Just have the money follow the kid to whatever the the school. It's yeah. to, to argue that it's not sustainable is insane. It's basically, I mean, I, so I, I was thinking to myself, like, so senior reporter Eileen Buckley, that's who did this for the ABC affiliate. I have a message to her, okay? Eileen Buckley, next time ask, quote, why not let charters grow to accommodate whatever demand there is from families and then redistribute the funding based on that demand? Question mark. Eileen Buckley, ask that question next time you do this story. Why can't the charters grow to accommodate whatever demand there is? Well, because it's not, it's, not about the kid. It's, not, it's not about the kids, Bob. It's about uh, protecting the monopoly. Why would we want um, them to lose their customers? That would be a problem for the monopoly. How, do they not even, how does she not even think to make this question, like to pose this question? I don't know. They, they just act like that's normal. Oh, well, gee, I guess that's the problem. We're not anti-charter. This just now, it's just unsustainable because it's just so many of them. People want to open more? No, no, that's can't, that can't work. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. I just, I, uh, I, it's the kind of thing. I'm, I'm not against you, you know, my competition existing. I'm just against you shopping there. Please don't leave. Yeah. As I tweeted, like, like I'm, I'm for me playing one-on-one -on -one against LeBron James, as long as his scores can't go over five and mine starts at 20. Like, so I'll compete with somebody. Let's just set up the rules so that there's no way they can start to do better than me. Right. That's essentially it. It, you know? Uh, yeah. For, it's like, yeah, just trying to say two things that at, at once that just don't jive with one another. I'm not anti-charter, but by the way, I'm just anti-competition, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just against allowing too many people to leave my schools because that'll be bad for me financially. Maybe that's what I'm against, but I'm not a, against the other. 
Only want to claim we're for competition in principle while actually suppressing the effect uh, of the competition in real life. <laughs> that insulates us from sounding scared of someone uh, competing against, against us while still protecting our turf. Anyway, all right. So more over to you. Yeah, more school districts are um, kind of kicking the can down the road. We've already seen this with New York City, right, uh, where we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. Uh, you know, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio pushed back the reopening date two or three times already after pushback from the union. And now we got a similar thing happening in Chicago. Mayor uh, Lightfoot was in a press conference a couple of days ago on the 28th. Um, and, you know, one of the reporters had pointed out that there were initially some discussions of returning to class around November 9th. Um, and, and the, the reporter asked her, you know, is, is that still on the table is, you know, how does that look? The response from mayor light Lightfoot, the, the big quote here was we're not there yet. Um, and not so she got yet. in, she got into issues about, you know, the workforce about, you know, what that's going to look like for teachers getting back to going, having to go back to work, what that's going to look like for staff having to go back to work. Um, uh, but yeah, she wouldn't give a, a, a formal, you know, firm answer on whether, you know, it's going to be uh, okay for the schools to reopen November 9th. And then the reporter asked, you know, well, what's, you know, is there like, like a guess that you have? Is it 50, 50 one way or the other? Um, and, and um, the mayor kind of reiterated that now we're not there yet. Um, we're, we're not ready to have that conversation yet. yet well, so. I, the mayor also added this quote, quote, what does it mean for members of that school community who are over 60, who have underlying medical conditions? Are we going to have enough robust workforce to be able to come back in person? Unquote. <laughs> Gee, I guess these are things that every hospital figured out in March and April and yep. every supermarket figured out in March and April and every police station figured out in March and April and all the other man, you know, employees that had to come to work figured out months and months and months ago, but it's not quite, it's, it's still a confusing, uh, it's just, well, when the mayor says it about, about teachers, it's just this ball of <sighs> cloud of confusion. Good. No. How could we possibly answer all these questions? It's only been six months. Well, I mean, with the grocery stores, you don't have the problems where they get your money regardless. And then here's another quote uh, from here. The Chicago Teachers Union put on pressure to continue remote learning, citing concerns for teacher and student safety amid the pandemic. Well, if your students aren't safe, you don't have to send your child back to the school. If it's not safe for your particular family situation, you could choose the virtual option. You don't have to send them back in person. And then, yeah, when just like you said, when it comes to the teachers and the employees, well... Um, all these yeah, other the, all these other yeah. sectors were able to return there. And maybe, yeah, maybe you do a thing where the older employees are able to not return. And maybe you do a thing for the, the younger employees um, uh, are, 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 are able to come back in person. I don't know how that looks. But, yeah, I mean, each individual um, institution has been able to figure that out. Um, Ironically, of course, you know, yeah. pay in education salaries are almost always determined in public schools purely by seniority. So there's some irony involved in the <laughs> oldest teachers who are by far making more money than, you know, a multiples uh, more money, two and three times the money of starting employees uh, may actually just kind of have time off to either not have to work or have an easier schedule by logging in a few hours a day from home. Meanwhile, the younger low paid employees are the ones doing the showing up in person because of course you can't ever change this pay schedule it has to be fixed forever that's this performance has zero impact on your pay in traditional public schools it has to be 100 percent based on your years served parents are pushing back now and local media are starting to cover this more and more and so th there's kind of a bigger point i wanted to drive to about this but first let's kind of get to an example that one example we found from Massachusetts, it was the Boston CBS affiliate talking about parents saying, and as you mentioned before, we've talked about New York City and Chicago and all these districts saying, oh, we can't open, we can't open, we can't open. We have now local news media showing the other side, and that is the side of parents. Plea from parents to the State Department of Education. They want their children back in the classroom, and state officials agree with them. But more schools are going in the opposite direction. WBZ's Christina Hager shows us why. 
Birds were heard chirping as classes got underway at Natick High, fully remote. Monday night, parents got a letter from the superintendent saying she's pulling back on the hybrid plan for two weeks because people already exposed to the virus attended and or hosted parties with numerous students over the past two weekends despite orders from the Board of Health to quarantine. People were immediately going out and texting each other and figuring it all out. Keeping students home has parents across the state frustrated. It is heartbreaking to watch your child struggle and have no idea how to help them. At a meeting held by the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, also known as DESE, parents begged to get their kids back in public schools. The schools are abandoning our children. Commissioner Jeffrey Riley says DESE has done everything possible to push for in-school learning. And again today. Most of our schools should be back in person to the greatest extent possible. But it's not happening. Hopkinton High suddenly went remote for the next two days after a student tested positive. While at Lincoln Sudbury High, students finally returned from a delay in in-person learning due to a large party. So, Corey, so the quotes they have in that, the word heartbreaking from the one mother, the phrase, the schools are abandoning our children Oof. from the father. To me, and I just wanted to make this point, this is the bigger picture to me anyway. Tell me if I'm wrong. But it's a fundamental shift in the, in the public school stakeholder calculus. And what I mean is normally, the normal calculus is that a local teacher's union might demand unreasonable things like lifetime tenure unless you're convicted of a felony and you know platinum retirement pension packages for the, the, the ordinary taxpayers don't have themselves, but they pay for for the teachers. It, it's the definition of special interest politics is that it's a high impact to those teachers to demand those things they get but a very distributed impact to the taxpayers. So incrementally, you can have more and more of those dysfunctional things happen because you have this disparity in the degree of impact each individual faces. If you're paying for it, you have a very distributed impact. If you're receiving mm -hmm. it, you have this massive impact. You're a teacher. The difference now is the stakeholder calculus has changed. It's a shift because parents are now high-stake stakeholders. They, their families are directly impacted with no in-person schooling. And those highly impacted parents, newly highly impacted parents, want pandemic pod money. It's a shift toward choice, but also a shift towards a much bigger impact of education policy hmm. on the lives of the parents, of the receivers of the education service, not just the providers. So. You yeah, you're right. It's gotten so bad for the parents that they've become essentially a new form of a special interest group. Um, and that's a that's a good it's thing. It's not even really you, that special. It's, it's mean, probably the majority of people. I don't know. But OK, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a dispersed interest that is uh, concentrated as well. Like you have tons of tons of people, a large fraction of the population, but they're now feeling a lot of the pain. And so they, they do have like kind of this concentrated interest kind of a powered, you know, kind of thing going on. So it's affecting them a lot, even though there's a whole lot of them. Yeah. But it's affecting mm -hmm, them all mm -hmm. a lot more than it used to when it was some sort of arcane education policy that they, you know, would have, would cost them a few pennies or a dollar or two or something. Yeah. I mean, um, at least, at least before the schools were actually providing some form of childcare services and people could go to work, but now they're often not even doing that in a lot of places in the U S. So, I mean, Massachusetts where that video came from, they, they were opening um, their bigger districts for virtual learning, and then they still shortened the school year by 10 days from 180 to 170 days. So there's all these weird things happening with the school districts there, and um, this could be another reason why you know families are looking at this and saying this this does yeah you know, we're we're getting the short end of the stick here. And I think families have always been getting the short end of the stick, but uh, this year it's ex it's, it's explicitly or it's, it's especially, you know, um, uh, front and center. Intense, yes. Yeah. All right, so let's move to Colorado where the governor, you mentioned before, actually, you you often remember stories that I, that I forgot about till you rem remind me about, about the Denver, was it the superintendent or a school board member who was pleading? I think it was a superintendent saying pleading, please don't, don't hire our teachers. Don't enroll all your right, kids. Right, right. Well, now, wow, look, it's the same state, but this time it's the governor. Governor Jared Polis says he fears some Colorado parents are trying to homeschool their kids without proper planning and curricula. 
Wow, that's uh, look at pleading with parents to sign up their kids for school. Please, please come just just not because it's better for your kid, but because it's better for us. At any rate, I love some of these quotes. Your kid will return to school someday, Paulus said at a coronavirus briefing with reporters. You don't want them to be behind. Remember that quote. I'm going to come back to it in a second. You don't want them to be behind. Okay, wow, that's the thing. That's good, right? Who wants the kid to be behind? He, uh, also, Paulus says he fears some Colorado parents are trying to homeschool their kids without proper planning and curriculum. Quote, don't just think you're homeschooling because you're giving your kid a book all day and leaving them at home. It's not Ooh. something to be taken lightly. OK, fair enough. Uh, the governor said the parents who don't feel they're comfort comfortable sending their kids back to school for in-person learning should at least enroll them in an online program. OK, that will give children access to social interaction with their peers as well as counseling should they need it. OK. Fair enough. But the pleading part was kind of funny. And I guess that was the newspaper's word. But, uh, you know, here's what I say. I say that, you know, gee, all this concern. Wow. Maybe these homeschool kids might not be learning enough. That, boy, let's hand ring about that. Let's work. OK, let's we can worry some about that. But maybe the governor should have been just as concerned about the one in five Colorado kids who hadn't been graduating from high school at all in the regular system, okay? Because the statewide, there's an 81% graduation rate. Maybe the governor would have been pleading about those one in five kids to maybe educate them better. And if you look at, for example, one of the school districts mentioned in, I, th I guess it's that article, the Colorado Sun. Yeah, the Aurora School District uh, mentions here. The that school district had a graduation rate of 72%, and the Inglewood School District had a graduation rate of 50.4%. What, what, where, where is my like Khrushchev shoe to bang on the table right now? 50.4% graduation rate. And then I said, just for fun, I don't even know what this website is, but like, let's look at some of the math proficiencies at the Englewood High School. And the answer is 12%, okay? So 88% of the kids at Inglewood, 88% of the kings at, kids at Inglewood High School were not proficient in math, and half of them weren't even graduating. And what we have from the governor of Colorado is him pleading with the parents, don't, uh, hey, don't pull your kids out of our public schools. Yeah. Don't do that. We don't want them to miss out on the 12% chance they'll be proficient in math. Yeah, and don't and don't think that you're doing any better with your homeschool situation. Oh yeah, no, you yeah, can't you can't can. can do better than us. You can't do better than us. So stay enrolled in our school so that we can keep your money. I mean, the article does mention funding too. Um, the period this this period helps uh, determine how much state funding each district gets. Funding is heavily influenced by each district's student count. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about funding. Let's not talk about the 50% uh, dropout rates and 12% and, and math proficiencies at, at the schools the governor is pleading with you to stay in. Let's, let's, let, let's just pretend that's not even there. It's, like, it's a form of blindness. It's a delusion. It's an intentional delusion. It's a magician's trick where you say, hey, look at this hand while the other hand's doing something else. I mean, I, I don't know. Am I crazy here? Uh, I see some of these, some of this data for the traditional public schools. It's just abysmal. And what do I see? Politicians pleading with parents to keep kids there. Yeah, we're we're failing your you kids, but keep your keep your uh, keep your kids enrolled. And we all know it's about the money. I mean, look at what the Denver Public Schools statement said. Same kind of thing as as this. Um, and it's just it's just such a weird like way that this is framed, right? Your kid will return to school someday, like. Like you're gonna need me. Don't leave me right now. You're gonna need me in the future. You know, like it's just that kind of like, um, yeah. You'll oh, need me someday. someday. You'll help you know, us someday. We we weren't helping you in the meantime. We're not even reopening yeah. our schools, but you'll need us later. Well, why don't oh, why aren't yeah, you there sure. for me now? Yeah, no, I'm sure that uh, the Englewood High School parents uh, are convinced that uh, you'll be needing us later. Right? Uh, we got to get back to that twelve percent. Anyway, yeah, that's that's my rant on that. All right. What do you got for us? Yeah, so, I mean, this is this this Colorado thing. I, I wish this article had more information on like how many students were enrolling because um, we've been we've been tracking that each week. Uh, hopefully that will come out soon. But um, look, we, we've talked about how in, in California there was something called the Senate Bill 98 that blocked funding from uh, following students to charter schools this year because they did an enrollment freeze in Senate Bill 98. Um, and now we're seeing that San Diego charter schools are suing the state 
to seek funding for thousands of students. So we've seen lots of uh, examples over the last couple of months where charter schools in California have actually had to put already admitted students back on the wait list because of this rule. And what it does is essentially punishes the good schools that people are seeking out because they don't get any additional funding for the students, but they get all the additional cost of educating the students. And it financially benefits the crappy schools that lose students because they get to keep their money even if the students leave. So what a lot of charter schools are having to do is put these kids back on the wait list because it's just not financially uh, feasible to do so. So you have charter schools in San Diego suing the state over this because they're having to deny services to children um, or, or they're having to accept the additional costs and, and take a hit uh, for, for serving additional kids at this time. Yeah, it says Springs Charter Schools, for example, currently serving 900 students out of its own pocket without yep. receiving state funding for any of them, according to the superintendent. Okay, they have about 10,700 students as well. So it's roughly an extra 10% of students that they just have to serve for free. And why? Well, because... Well, we can't let the funding follow them. No, that's a, you know that could impact over here. Some other the, the group of schools they're fleeing. Yeah, and these are so. these are these are public schools too, according to the definition of a public school in California and elsewhere. They're accessible to the public. They're actually more public than most traditional public schools because charter schools in general have to accept all comers and use random lottery when they have more people than than are um, uh, than than seats available. Um, and yeah, the just traditional public schools, you know, um, discriminate by zip code in so many places. Yeah, just go go to that next paragraph right after the Springs Charter School paragraph. Yeah, scroll down. Yeah, that next paragraph. Show. Yeah, read that. Springs turned away seven thousand students who applied this year because it could not afford to serve them, and thirty five hundred students are currently on the wait list. I mean, yeah, people want these options. And they what? 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 Away seven thousand. Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, and, and what happens? They they make it hard, as hard as possible for families to access these options. And I mean, some people could look at this and say, "Oh, well, it's 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 um, you know, uh, this is bad for charter schools." But the people who are really getting the short end of the stick here are the individual families. These people that are being put back on the wait list who are choosing these schools and want these schools because they're trying to get away from traditional schools that aren't serving their children in an adequate way for whatever reason. So these yeah. families are, are being turned away because of this rule. And, and, and Gavin Newsom signed a bill that actually said it would, it would allocate from the state budget uh, more money when schools add students, but it, it excluded online charter schools in the, mm -hmm. in the bill, this amendment to the state budget, essentially, that allowed districts and classroom-based schools to receive funding for enrollment growth, excluded online schools. Why? Wow, that's going to compete because well, yeah, because they, the traditional public schools. I mean, I was looking at the data from Education Week on this. Um, and they have about I want to say they have like fifty districts in the data set in California. It's not all of them, but you, you know the larger ones. And only four percent of the school districts in California reported that they're going to reopen with in-person instruction available to all students. Um, in Florida, for example, that number is about seventy-eight percent right now. Um, so California, they're just not reopening. They're doing the virtual thing, not doing a good job with the virtual thing. And families are wanting to go to these other virtual charter schools. It's just, yeah. you know, they're, they really can't do that if, if, the, if the charter schools don't have the, um, the funding to, to be able to, to provide the services to those children. Yeah, so, it's another, it's, it's another um, proving of that piano video we talk about where the concert piano player is, you know, doing something playing well, and then the toddler banging on the keys is doing something poorly and just calling it all piano playing, it's like calling online learning. Oh, it's just all online learning. No, sometimes districts do it. They don't know how to do it. They screw it up. Parents hate it. And they think that's online learning. But then you have these other online schools that have gotten really good at it and they've done it for years. And, in some cases, decades, and the parents say, oh my gosh, this is so much better. Let me into that. And you have, you know, 7,000 kids who want to get into this online school that are get, get turned away. Okay. Um, all right. So do you want to add anything else? Or go on. Yeah. I mean, this is just a, another way for um, the government to protect the monopoly at the expense of families. We've been seeing this all throughout the past couple of months. We've been seeing actions from the teachers unions lobbying to make it illegal to switch to virtual schools in uh, Oregon. We saw a similar bill that passed in Pennsylvania to freeze enrollment to 
and that singled out charter schools from getting additional funding when they got additional students. Um, and then now we're seeing this in California. We're, you know, we're seeing this in a lot of different places. And it's, it's a shame because the, the, the people who are being hurt by this are the families who, who need these alternatives right now. And this is you know, a moment where families are in need more than ever. And the government is coming out against them in these different states. So the question, we will uh, pose it rhetorically at first, do Fourth Amendment privacy rights extend to what public school teachers see in homes during Zoom classes? How much privacy should there be? I guess we could all assume a scenario where a teacher sees something really, really bad, and that yeah. might justify one kind of course of action, or other kinds of things that are just maybe uh, things the teacher has no right to act on because it really should be private a private space that the government is getting this new video window into that has never existed before. So the New Orleans NBC affiliate tells the story of how the state attorney general of Louisiana has joined this, this discussion. It is taking the side of students against school districts. The state's top prosecutor says at least three Louisiana students learning from home during the coronavirus pandemic have been suspended for items seen in their bedrooms during online classes. Landry says all three were threatened with expulsion and their efforts to appeal ignored. To me, the biggest and the most troubling part of this is the fact that the school systems, uh, as I can appreciate it, even around the state, not only not just trying to single out Jefferson Parish, uh, has not paused to think about the constitutional protections and rights that should be afforded when the school enters someone's home. Landry learned of the first student in this situation when WDSU investigates broke the story last week of nine-year-old Kamari Harrison. He was suspended for moving a BB gun in his bedroom during virtual school. I believe it's, it's, it's a slam dunk case for violation of someone's Second Amendment right. The Harrison family met with Department of Justice investigators and Landry Monday. The result? This letter sent to state education leaders Tuesday, pushing for new policies, protections, and recourse for all online students. Overwhelming, you know, for, for my son to be able to be the forefront of a, of a powerful movement, you know, and that's something, and, and, and we need change, you know, in today's day and age, it's 2020. So far, Kamari's school record has not changed. It's still marked with a weapons violation. The family attorney prepared to take the case to court, saying they now have the recording of the online class. They say will clear Kamari's name. Does it reinforce what Kamari said happened and what the teacher said happened? Absolutely. Of course, we all want to see that video, too. The attorney tells me she's working with the attorney general's office to get that video made public. I reached out to the state superintendent and Bessie today to get a response to the AG's letter. Bessie did not respond. The Department of Education sent me this two-sentence statement. It says, quote, we have received the letter. School discipline is within the scope of authority and responsibility of local school systems. Reporting live in Harvey, I'm Jennifer Crockett. Back to you. So, oh, Corey DeAngelis, on. you are America's second most famous libertarian, I'd say, or maybe third most famous after maybe John Stossel and Rand Paul. <laughs> anyway, what do you say about the privacy rights of families where the government now has a camera into their houses? I mean, I, I think it's just totally stupid of, of what this what happened in Louisiana and other places where they have a BB gun behind them and they're enforcing the the rules of the school as if the child had taken the BB gun to school as if they had a weapon on the campus. I mean, Washington Post wrote about this as well. And they got a quote from and said that the school district said that the kid had committed a violation of weapons in the classroom setting. In the classroom. I get, I get it's like a classroom setting. It's a zoom call, but it's not the classroom. He didn't take a gun to school. Like this is completely different. And they're punishing him quote from the father. The father said, uh, they're treating it as if he had brought a weapon to school. They told me he would be facing expulsion. And then they, you know, they, it got whittled down to being a suspension for like a week or something. And they, they're acting like that. He should be thankful that he wasn't expelled, that he was suspended. And it's like, well, what does a suspension even mean in this case? Right. Is it just that uh, you can't log into the, I mean, you're, you I, mean I can't go to school anyway. So uh, this might yeah. be a, a reward for the student. Oh, I don't, I don't have to lock log into the zoom classroom anymore. Right. This is great. 
but I, I mean, write yeah. a paper. I don't have to do a quiz. This is my punishment. But I just and I'll sit here in the room I was in anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I don't know much about like the. I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know how this kind of comes into like your Fourth Amendment violations. But it, it does seem like there is a question to be raised there about uh, you know now the government is looking into my child my child's bedroom, and uh, now they're telling him that he can't have certain things in the bedroom. Then I think that's that's kind of like this privacy violation problem. Um, I guess some people on the other side would come back and say, well, you don't have to enroll in the public schools, but then, but you kind of do because it's uh, compulsory. We have compulsory education laws ask and we Kamala have to pay Harris for and it. Her truancy convictions. Yeah. I ask her about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a, a case to be made here that there's a fourth amendment issue going on when, when there is no like clear threat of anything bad happening and there's just a bb gun unloaded on the wall behind him while he's taking a test not even using it i mean there was other examples of this happening what uh, what didn't something in new jersey happen as well like the kid had a nerf gun i think there was another bb gun case and a nerf gun case there's a nerf and, and, gun and in those cases the police actually came to the child's house and there's so much so many ways in that that can go wrong from the teacher reporting the kid for a nerf gun that could go south um, if a, if you're whenever you get you know deadly force involved with the police showing up or to just a person's the, or just home. the trauma of the to the kid who did nothing wrong and did yep. nothing to deserve that it's insane. There were also there was there were kids there been kids who had a political you know it was uh, either I think a MAGA hat or something who were told that they couldn't do that in their own room in their mm -hmm. own bedroom they could, or mm -hmm. or some sort of political uh, stuff and you know my view is different from the subject of. You know, if a teacher has that stuff, I think that's inappropriate political messaging, whether it's BLM or 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 MAGA or what what have you. But I think if kids have it, that's a different thing, and that's just that ought to be left alone. Yeah, and uh, as I always say, I think school choice would fix all of this. Then you want to have the whole um, protections against government thing. You'd you'd voluntarily, if you're in a private school with. Um, with a Zoom classroom, it wouldn't really be a Fourth Amendment issue because you'd voluntarily uh, opt into that educational setting with that. But I mean, I, I think uh, Colleen from uh, Commonwealth Foundation commented on my thread about this, saying like a lot of the virtual charter schools, I believe, don't have it to where the the teachers like watching the student every every second of the day, and it's it's less intrusive into the home. And so yeah, maybe some of those whiteboards or whatever, where they just watch the kid like writing numbers or do whatever, doing yeah. things like that, whatever. There, there can be other things too. Um, all right, well, let's move on. We're, we're short on time. We've got South Carolina. Yeah, so in South Carolina, I tweeted about this. Uh, the charter school authorizers in South Carolina actually estimated enrollment to grow by over 40% this fall. And they went over some numbers in this um, uh, uh, this might be the article. It might I mean, not that's, be. Don't just gloss over that. That's stunning. 40% is, is a stunning number to me. Yeah. Well, especially when you see that coupled with the fact that uh, a lot of the school districts are seeing everywhere that we've seen that we've reported on the show have been pretty significant reductions in enrollment. So I think we saw this in Florida too. I think Broward County public schools, I saw an article on this where they were seeing about a three and a half percent reduction in enrollment in the public schools. But then they were actually seeing enrollment increases in the charter schools. Now we don't have numbers on the traditional schools in South Carolina, but we are we do have a positive, whereas we've seen negatives pretty much everywhere else for the I'm charter schools. I'm surprised school they sector. had enough empty seats. They had, I'm surprised they had you know an, 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 a fourteen thousand empty seats that could. That's what I think the article says is happening. More than fourteen thousand new students have enrolled at charter schools. Gee, I mean, I'm I'm used to seeing charter schools all with waiting lists, so. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they yeah, it, had. Maybe there is new capacity, or new schools came online. Also, yeah, or maybe the charters were doing a better job with the virtual. It was. I couldn't really tell. I don't even know if South Carolina has a virtual charter school law available, but uh, that could be part of it if they do. Um, and it could be that the charter schools are just doing a better job of the remote learning, maybe because they've they've been doing it for a while already. But yeah, then another forty thousand added to wait lists. So this is huge we're seeing this you know big exodus from the public school system at least the traditional public schools and families voting with their feet to charter schools you know and then also you know we're seeing support for uh, private school choice on the rise as well which we talked about uh, i believe last week 
where there's a 10 percentage point increase in the likelihood of supporting school choice measures of, among families who have kids in the public school system. So like families are scrambling. One parent they interviewed, she can't envision sending her son back to traditional in-person public school, even after she feels safe doing so. Quote, we can see him grow now in his education and be more confident about his education and his learning without having to worry about the small things that were distracting him before. Her only regret, she says, is she didn't make the switch to online learning sooner. This, and I, you know, I understand it's an anecdote of a, an individual person, but, um, you know, we keep seeing this stuff. All right, so. Let's get on to Tennessee. Uh, you know, maybe we may have subconsciously buried this story because it's bad news. Yeah, but, yeah. But we have the Tennessee Court of Appeals. Look, they have upheld the decision that I guess a lower court had said and that we have covered this before when the lower court first came with this decision saying, oh, the reason this is unconstitutional is you just picked two places in Tennessee for education savings accounts to happen, essentially Memphis area and Nashville area. And we have some law in Tennessee that says... You can't do that unless the local areas vote. If you have a law that's not statewide, but just picks out certain parts of the state, you've got to get those certain communities to also vote on it. And you didn't do that. So this is against the Tennessee Constitution or something, et cetera. So you have this, uh, you know, being, of course, it's been appealed immediately. The state attorney general, the article says, quickly appealed the decision, hoping to kick off the program with the 2021 school year, but the courts blocked the state from receiving applications. I guess that was the original uh, loss and they appealed quickly. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, yeah. So, I mean, what do, so what do you think about this? We talked a little earlier, Corey, yeah. about this question of limiting choice to certain areas so that maybe there'll be less opposition because there won't be statewide opposition because we'll just create choice programs in certain places where the schools are really bad. And that way we'll reduce yeah. our opposition. But as we often talk about, then you also reduce your allies. But what do you say? No, this, this is why you should just go universal. I mean, a lot of these people who are trying to use the Tennessee Constitution uh, language as a weapon to get rid of the school choice program, it's because they oppose all types of school choice programs. It's not like these same people, if given a deal, would say, oh, well, we'll be totally fine with it if, if it's statewide and available to every single location. I mean, the issue here is called the home rule of the Tennessee constitution. And their, their argument is that you're forcing this on a, a couple of localities. Um, but like Jason Bedrick said, I think his, his response was the best that no one is forced to use any of these programs. Each individual family can explicitly make that choice. And they, whichever families live in those localities couldn't make, can make that choice to opt in to the program or not. So it's not being forced on any any individual. And so I think that's a great argument by Jason Bedrick, but um, yeah, I think this, you know, sure I'm, is. I'm, I'm happy this is going to the state Supreme court. Hopefully they overturn this ruling. Who knows what's going to happen. It looks like AFC Shaka Mitchell is uh, optimistic about wh where this is going to go and hopefully ruling uh, uh, on the favor in the, in favor of parents and choices. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, this, this should have always been just a universal program anyway, but uh, yeah. I, I think it still should be available to certain localities as well. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, you know, the geography of the program shouldn't matter. Yeah. Well, as of course, uh, surprise, surprise, Nashville and Memphis official praise ruling, meaning, oh boy, they're happy this thing got ruled unconstitutional. Quote, we're so excited. The Tennessee Court of Appeals upheld the decision announcing the education savings account, and as we call it, the voucher law was Ooh. ruled unconstitutional. Who thought that? Oh, that was a superintendent of the Shelby County School Board. Yeah, well, he thinks it's great. He says, this is excellent news as we continue to champion public education and equitable funding. So they champion equitable funding. They're not champion equi championing equitable access to choice, by the way, which wealthy parents all have access to choice. But that's not very equitable, the access to choice, right? When, when he says equitable, he doesn't mean that kind of equitable, right? The whole choice access... Let's have that inequitable. <laughs> We're going to keep that as not equitable as possible because that's the choice. That choice should stay over there and this non-choice should stay over here. We don't mean that kind of equitable. So anyway, and then you have, but then, yeah, as you pointed out, it's going to be appealed to the to the state Supreme Court. And I guess like usual, they handicap who the justices are in a certain state Supreme Court. And I guess uh, the school choice crowd is optimistic on that. 
Yeah, so hopefully they rule in, in favor of uh, parents. Uh, just to get to the rest of the uh, yeah articles, we had another one from Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I kind of hinted at this a little earlier in that uh, Bill de Blasio pushed back the uh, starting date of schools uh, two times or three times already when, whenever it came closer to the start date. It looks like they finally started schools in person in New York City for some schools yesterday, Tuesday, September 29th. But right before um, that reopening happened, uh, there was actually a the New York City Principals Union called on the mayor to cede control of schools to the state department, uh, education department. And they, they had a vote of no confidence in Mayor Bill de Blasio. So I'm, I'm waiting for the news story. <laughs> Family of Bill de Blasio votes no confidence in Bill de Blasio. Like there are so, <laughs> this guy has lost so many allies. Like everybody hates Bill de Blasio now. This is the one thing yep. under, under a nation divided. <laughs> we can all agree on hating Bill de Blasio, which this story seems to... So, you know, I'm not exactly, I see Principals Union uh, saying they want to do something. I'm already suspicious. But then I see they're against Bill de Blasio. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll. Yeah, right. when, when does the um, union ever call for state control of the school system? It's kind of strange. This is kind of a weird dynamic coming here. Usually they're against kind of these, uh, um, you know, state control of school systems thing. But I think it's because, I mean, it could be because de Blasio is actually kind of pushing a little bit for some at least hybrid reopening of schools. And maybe he's not giving them exactly what they want at the, at the bargaining table. I mean, he already gave them 4,500 additional staff in the school system, but it there's looks no, like the, the no, unions want no more enough. than that. They want yeah, more than no that. Enough. They already talked about there's that. You know? There's no enough. And the fact is I'm actually, uh, I, he's finally doing something closer to what I would want him to do, but I, it, he's just such a disaster on so many other fronts that I kind of throw <laughs> up my hands. All right. And as if this weren't enough excellence for one random assignment episode, we have the dramatic crescendo with this story. Oh, my goodness. A Virginia school district paying $20,000 for a one hour talk from the author Ibram Kendi on the subject of critical race theory. OK, so. So we can analyze the story just from the fact that any school paid twenty thousand dollars to anybody Anyone. for a one-hour yeah. talk. Like <laughs> we could just go on with that, with all this. Oh, but uh, it's, you know, private schools aren't accountable, 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 right? And we have public schools; they fill out all these forms that makes them accountable, right? We've got these school boards and the school board members that proves accountability because they're so accountable. And then you see these story twenty thousand dollars for one hour, and then you're like, oh, and then of uh, then of all the people, this particular person, in my opinion advances a racist ideology, which is a critical race theory that says things like working hard is associated with whiteness and saving for the future and delaying gratification is associated with whiteness. And in fact, put out a tweet when uh, when justice, when the Judge Barrett was nominated to be the potential new Supreme Court justice, put uh -huh. out a tweet about how uh, her adoption of of uh, of kids of children of color uh, was somehow uh, a way to stave off accusations of her own racism. It was a really ugly, ugly tweet that, mm. that this Ibram Kendi put out. I found it repulsive. I found it racist. And if, so of all the people that get 20 grand for one hour, it's this guy. Well, then also this was a, a virtual event, right? So it's kind of like me sitting here on my laptop uh, and doing a little webcam thing and there was no travel involved. It was just a virtual event. So that's another kind of angle to this. But then also this is a, another school district that's not reopening for in-person because uh, apparently they don't have enough money, but then they have right. enough money for this stuff. And this is also the same school district that uh, is paying bus drivers to drive around town with empty buses without any, they're not taking the kids to school, but they're still paying the bus drivers to drive around pointlessly around town and creating more, uh, um, uh, <laughs> just traffic and, 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 and issues on the streets. But um, yeah, I mean, it, and yeah, it's not, it's not even the particular person that's being uh, employed here. I mean, some families may have issues with who's being chosen. They may not want to spend yeah, their tax dollars on, on this particular uh, talk, but then also, yeah, it's just a lot of money, especially for the school district not reopening. And then, I mean, a lot of the critical race theory concepts are similar to what actual white supremacists say. 
They make these distinctions about this kind of people with this kind of skin color behave this way, and these other kind of people with this other kind of skin color behave this other way. This I don't know if you saw the video. It's kind of a, a comedy video on how like woke and racist believe in the same things. Uh, this ah. was a yeah. This is this. It, I'm reminded of that. So in my mind, it's both, Corey. It's not just it's 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 the it's the what. Look, this guy's not going to do it for for tw for ten grand, right? He needs the twenty grand for the one hour online thing. Yeah, you could have possibly done it for three grand. Anyway, the point is, is I wouldn't I wouldn't have him do it for zero grand because of of who he is, in my opinion. And or you know, at least, well, at least maybe you have a vote of the school board before this happens. And I'm I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. I'm assuming that didn't happen. Let me just put it that way. But anyway, but you tweeted on this. You tweeted Corey Daniels. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I I was one of the first people to cover this, I think. But uh, yeah, just uh, kind of pointing out that, look, here it is. And then um, I think Azra Nomani was the first one to actually find this, but uh, she actually shares the contract here, you know, 20,000 venue virtual. This was August 6, 2020. Um, and it's about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's for him to go over his stuff that he, that he goes over, you know, with the critical, critical race theory topic. Um, right. but yeah, so that's that kind of like the, the primary source there. And, and then, then I had my favorite response to your tweet, that one, but I bet you anything <laughs> they're simultaneously complaining they're underfunded and have all sorts of financial problems. I could have told them that all people, all white people are racist for $3. <sighs> I thought Ouch. that from Daryl was, was kind of funny. I could have told him all white people are racist. How hard is that? At any rate, you've wasted yet another hour of your time watching either Click and Clack the Tappet Brothers on NPR Car Talk or Random Assignment with Corey and Bob. So please subscribe, like, and share this content. You know why? All that's free. The price for unlike twenty grand for one hour, we're charging you nothing for one hour. Huh. We're just charging you the the like and the share and the uh, subscribe. So that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good deal actually. All right, so this is my sign off, I, and I'll hand it over to you, Corey, for the final sign off. Yep, and uh, just want to thank everybody for coming out again to the Random Assignment Podcast. We'll uh, talk to you next week.